All right, well, good morning. Glad you're here. Glad you came back. Uh, just a reminder, if you didn't pick up one of these flash drives, they're on the table outside. This has the uh, full devotionary on Exodus that I wrote earlier in the year. That's part of your homework, so take one of these. Just take one. Don't take three. If you have three computers, you don't need three for each computer. Um, if you don't uh, know how to use a PDF uh, and print it out, or if you're too cheap to print it out, we're printing them out each week, and so week three's reading is there on the table, so you can grab one of those when you leave. But we're going to jump into it this morning. we got a lot of ground to cover, and we're going to pick up the story where we left off, and we're going to look at uh, Moses. Uh, Moses is going to appear on the scene and get this uh, kind of show going where we all know it's supposed to go. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for these men, and thank you for this opportunity to come together, eat breakfast together, fellowship, study your word. And Father, it's my prayer that we would see you today, that we would, um, through your word, through these stories, through these historical events, that we would see the God whom we worship, and we would learn things about you that are as true now as they were true then, and that we would trust you more because of what we see. And may, may Father, we be changed by what we hear today. Uh, we pray your blessings on the time we have together, the discussion time in just a little bit, and Father, we we just want to grow. We want to grow to be more like you and understand you better so that we can live for you and accomplish all the things you have for us to do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to pick up where we left off. As I said, we're going to pick up with uh, kind of the introduction to Moses. Where did Moses come from? Now, here's what I need you to do. Um, last week we, we said that we're looking at the same God. We worship the same God that Moses worshiped, that Abraham worshiped, Isaac worshiped. Uh, our God has not changed. He's not a different God today. If you have the idea that somehow we worship a different God, like we worship the God of the New Testament and they worship the God of the Old Testament, I hope by the time we're done with this series that you'll recognize that he's one and the same. He's, he's not different. We don't have a different God. We don't worship a different God. And, and so we're gonna see that every single week that our God has not changed. Our God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And what I want you to look for in this week's lesson is that your God is sovereign. Your God is sovereign over all things. Um, that's a big theological term that just means he's in control. He's in control at all times over all things, whether it looks like it or not, feels like it or not, your God is in control. Because we're going to see in this story, I hope we see it, that God is doing things behind the scenes that Moses doesn't know about, Pharaoh doesn't know about, the people of Israel don't know about, the parents of Moses don't know about. There are things going on, even when we don't see God in the passage, when he's not mentioned in the passage, he is obviously working behind the scenes, orchestrating every single event so that his will may be done. And what you need to do is, is take that and translate it onto your own life. You know, is, is God working behind the scenes in my life and I just don't see it? The chances are you don't see it. You, you don't see God at work. And, and so that's when you, you start to go, well, well, where is God? Why has God left me? Why has God forsaken me? Why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't God rescue me? Why doesn't God do X, Y, Z? And what you don't realize is that he is working. He is operating behind the scenes. You just don't know what he's doing and how it's going to turn out yet. And so I need you to look for that as we go through the story. So we're going to pick it up in verse 8. We covered the first seven verses last week, and we're going to cover more territory today, and that's going to be true in the weeks ahead. We're going to have to take larger chunks of Scripture. That's why doing the homework is going to help you. So let's pick it up in verse 8. It says, now, that's a transitional word, after all that's happened in the first seven verses, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
So you already see something going on here because last week we talked about the fact that those seven verses we covered ended with the fact that the people of Israel were multiplying. One of the commentators says they were multiplying like rabbits. They were just, they were prolific. And as we said, that blessing of God, because God's behind it all, was going to cause a problem. And we see the problem. We now see the results of that multiplication, the, the, the fact that they started as 70, 70 and now they're growing in number so much so that it's gotten the attention of Pharaoh and it's going to bring some unexpected and undesirable change. I told you last week, from what I can tell studying the, the history of Israel, that they, they weren't under oppression for 400 years. That didn't happen until later in their time in Egypt. They were there, and they were living in that northern region called the Nile Delta up in the northern part of, of Egypt. It's actually called Lower Egypt because the way the river flows. But they were doing well. They were shepherds. They had flocks. They had herds. They were actually the shepherds for Pharaoh himself. They were doing extremely, extremely well for a long period of time, but then things changed. And you can't forget the fact that God is involved in all that's happening. And one of the things I've really had to wrestle with, guys, is that I can read these stories and I can see God's hand in the lives of the Israelites. I just, I just don't see his hand in my life. I, I really have a difficult time seeing God at work in the ups and downs of my life. I see him in the good stuff. I just have a real hard time seeing him in the bad stuff, that God could be working even in that. And I hope we see that today, that their fruitfulness... The fact that they had multiplied so much that it got Pharaoh's attention was God's doing. It's not that they're prolific. It's not that they just like making babies. It's that God is multiplying them because what did he tell them was going to happen? I'm going to send you to the land of Egypt and you're going to multiply. I'm going to make you into a great nation. How many were there when they got there? 70. And by the time now in this story, they're probably in the millions. So they have become incredibly prolific so it's God's doing, and what's the result? He's blessed them, right? Blessed them abundantly, but that fruitfulness leads to a problem. God has blessed you. God has blessed me. God has done great things for you and I, and sometimes those blessings can result in problems. Um, we don't foresee them. We don't want them. We don't like them. We try to pray ourselves out of them, and yet there was, they're actually the result of the blessings of God. And we're going to see that in this story. Their prosperity turns into what? Persecution. And I can't help but read these stories and go, man, God, I think I would have did it d differently. I think I would have had a better plan than this one. I, I think you did them a disservice because you blessed them. Now they're being persecuted. But here's the deal. Is God in control or is he not in control? Is any of this a surprise to God? Is he sitting up in heaven going, man, I had no idea that when I multiplied them that this was going to happen? No, he's going, man, this is, this is happening according to clockwork. This is happening right according to schedule, exactly as I planned it. Now, again, you can see that in this story and go, man, what a great God. But that as soon as something bad happens in your life, what do you do? All bets are off. What kind of God would let this happen to me? You know, we have a... a young man and his wife who uh, he comes on Tuesday night and uh, his wife was pregnant with their fourth child, James Hayes and Sarah. And they lost that baby this last week. Born premature, extremely premature. And um, she delivered, but the baby's lungs were not formed enough. I look at that guy and I go, God, I, I don't get it. I don't understand that. I, why would you let this happen to this couple? And I don't know the answer to that question, guys. All I know is that my God's in control. My God is sovereign. I don't know what God's planned for them. I don't know how God is going to heal the heartache that they feel. But I do know this. I can come alongside them just like you can come alongside them and love them and encourage them and pray for them because God's not done yet. That's the God we worship. I don't always get it. I don't always like it. I don't always understand it. Either my God is in sovereign, full control over all things or he's not. 
and I don't want to worship that God. I don't want to worship a God who's up in heaven going, how did that happen? See, see, my God is in control. He's fully aware of what's going on. And so we're going to see in this story God's hand all over the lives of the Israelites. So this new Pharaoh comes to power. New, new king on the block. New guy shows up who did not know Joseph. Why is that important? Well, because Joseph played a pretty significant role in the lives of the Israelites during their time in Egypt. When we did the study of uh, Genesis, we saw in the latter chapters that he's the star of the story. He becomes the, the main emphasis of, of the story because his brothers sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, and through a chain of events, he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. And because of that, he's able to put together a plan to not only save the Egyptians from a famine, but all the surrounding nations as far away as Canaan, who now come to Egypt to be rescued from the famine that has come on the land. So for 80 years, this guy has served in Pharaoh's court. How do I know that? Because the scriptures tell me. We know in Genesis 41, he was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh. We know from later in the same book, he died at 110 years old. And from what we can tell, he was part of Pharaoh's court, second most powerful man in the country for 80 years. So he's pretty significant, but he dies. We saw that last week in the first seven verses, that Joseph dies and all his brothers die. That generation dies off. See, we're years later now in the story. Between seven and eight of chapter one, there's a big time gap, as we'll see. But this guy was pretty important, but he dies, and this Pharaoh doesn't know him. So I've put in your notes this chart. Um, if you've come to Band of Brothers very much, I like charts, because charts, I'm a visual guy. I spent 29 years as a graphic designer. Uh, this is the way my brain works. I, I have to see stuff. And so this helps me understand the timeline for Exodus. And I want to just concentrate on one little thing here. If you notice in the middle there, you've got view A and view B. There's a lot of debate among theologians as to when did these things happen? When did the Israelites uh, escape Egypt? When did Moses uh, come to power in order to deliver them? I'm a view B guy, as you're going to see. And so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in this, but I, I need you to see this because I think it'll help you understand that God is in sovereign control. There are so many things happening behind the scenes that we're oblivious to. And we read these stories and we don't see it and we don't understand it because we don't understand the whole story of Scripture and we don't understand history. And so I want to just do a real brief history lesson on the people of Israel and the Egyptians. So you look there and it says 1730 B.C., in 1730 BC, something happens. A group of people take control of the northern part of Egypt, and they're called the Hyksos. They're Semitic. They're relatives of the Jews. They come from Canaan. And so this group of people had migrated into Egypt, probably for the same reason that Joseph and his family did, because of the famine. But they come into Egypt, they become powerful, and they actually take over that northern part of Egypt, the Hyksos, and they rule for a number of centuries. And they, they're not Egyptians, but they're ruling over that northern part of Egypt, much to the chagrin of who? The Egyptians. They don't like it, and they're Semitic, and so it's going to cause all kinds of problems. And during that reign, from about 1700 B.C. all the way to about 1550 B.C., these Semitic people are in control of that whole region. Who else lives up in that whole region? The descendants of Jacob, who have multiplied like rabbits. They're also, what, Semitic. And so they're living in a wonderland, right? They're, they're being ruled over during this time by people who are more like them than the Egyptians. And so it's a great time to be alive. It's a great time to be a Semite during the rule of the Hyksos. So who are these people? Well, as I said, they migrated at some point from Canaan, and they have become powerful, and they're a ruling class. And they will be a ruling class for a number of centuries. And, and they have a multitude of as many as six different kings who rule in that northern part of Egypt. And they are known for their shepherding. Isn't that interesting? What were the descendants of Jacob known for? Shepherding. And they're living in a very fertile land, and they're also known for their multicolored garments. 
which reminds me of the story of Joseph. So here you have these Semites living in northern Egypt. They're in charge, and they will self-govern for about a century in that region. That's significant. Why is it significant? Because they're providing cover for the Israelites so that they can grow and so that they can prosper. See, this is not happenstance. This is not just fate. This is God working behind the scenes so that everything is perfect for the people of Israel to grow. But ultimately, they get overthrown by the Egyptians. And that's going to be real important to the story. So what happens? Jump backwards. Here's what it says. Behold, this is Pharaoh. Pharaoh comes back to power. A Pharaoh is going to conquer these Hyksos people, and he's going to take back control of that region. Now, what do you think the first thing he's going to do when he takes over that region? He's going to oppress anybody who's a Semite. The Hyksos, the Israelites, if you look like a Semite, walk like one, dress like one, act like one, you are dead meat as far as he's concerned because he wants back control of his country. So this Pharaoh comes to power and he says, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us. Notice what he says, lest they become too many and too mighty. Well, they already are which is exactly what God said would happen, and that's, that's exactly what the first seven verses told us happened. And he recognizes and goes, man, there's way too many of these Semites. Now, he's focusing on the people of Israel, but what are they? Semites. And he goes, there are way too many of them. They're too mighty for us, so let's deal truly with them, lest they multiply more. And this is where you're going to see a conflict begin to happen, a conflict that's Bigger than just Egyptians versus Semites. This is about the will of God versus the will of Pharaoh. So the Egyptians come back into power, and the Egyptian Pharaoh is a guy named Achmos I. And he comes to power, and he defeats Kamudi, who's the last king of the Semites, the Hyksos. Now again, God, Ken, this is way too, too much information. The only reason I'm doing this, guys, is I need you to understand that God is working behind the scenes in ways that we don't see and we don't understand, but we can look back historically and see it. And I think we've got to start looking back in our own lives and seeing how, man, I had no idea that was God. I had no idea he intervened there. I had no idea how he was going to do that, but he did. See, your God is still the same God. Your God is still in control. So Pharaoh Achmos comes to power and he defeats the Hyksos. And what does he do? He turns them into pariahs. He turns the people of Egypt against anybody who's of Semitic origin. It's anti-Semitism 101. Get rid of them. Oppress them. Because what? He's afraid if we don't, they're going to rise to power again, and they're going to overwhelm us, or they're going to align themselves with one of our enemies and defeat us again, and we're going to lose control of Egypt again. And he doesn't want that to happen. And he will do anything in his power to protect Egypt's sovereignty. And I don't blame the guy, right? He's watched a century's worth of Semite rule over Egyptian territory, and he's like, this isn't going to happen again, and I will stop it, and I will do anything to stop it, and we're going to see he will do anything, and he includes the Israelites. Now, again, is God up in heaven at any point in the story going, I had no idea this was going to happen. I blessed them to bless them, and now look at this. I should have just left them 70, and they'd be fine. No, they would have been oppressed if there were 70 or 70 million because they're Semites, because the Hyksos came to power, and the Hyksos ruled for over a century. And so the Israelites get included in this as part of God's plan. So here's what's interesting. Atmos I comes up with a plan, as all leaders do, right? All leaders come up with plans. Sad part is most of those plans are bad. Well, this guy's going to come up with a really bad plan. He says, let us deal shrewdly, wisely with them. Let's figure out what to do with all these Semites, especially these Israelites who breed like rabbits and they're everywhere. Let's deal shrewdly lest they multiply. We got to put an end to this. We want to wipe out any threat from these people, these people from Canaan, but especially the Israelites. 
lest they multiply. So the battle lines get drawn. And, and you're going to see, guys, this is not the Israelites versus the Egyptians. This is about something far greater than that. It's about the will of God and the will of Pharaoh. Who is Pharaoh according to the Egyptians? He's a god. He's considered a god. He's worshipped like a god. Almost all of the Pharaoh's names, if you go back and study them, like Tutmos and Akmos, you, you see that they, they have a god name in front of their name their family name, because they're associated with a particular God. And the Egyptians had thousands of gods. And so he's viewed himself as a incarnation of a God. He's, he's a man God. And so he's worshiped and he's got a will, but God's got a will. Whose will's going to win out? It, it ain't going to be Pharaoh's will. You don't have to see the movie. You don't have to read the story. What is God's will for the people of Israel? Multiplication. That's what he said over and over again. I will multiply you. I will multiply you. And what has he done? He's multiplied them. What's Pharaoh's will? Suppression. He wants to suppress the people to keep them from multiplying. God's will is their emancipation, their freedom. What's this guy's will? Their subjugation. We're going to enslave them. We're going to do things to them to, to hold them down, to suppress them. And he's going to go further than that, as we'll see. God wants to exalt them. He wants to oppress them. So you see these two battle lines being drawn between Pharaoh, who represents the enemy, Satan, and God. And somebody's going to win that battle. And it ain't going to be Pharaoh. But it doesn't mean that Pharaoh's not going to have some success. He will have success. He will implement his plan. But it says the more he oppressed the Israelites, what happened? The more they multiplied. I love that. It's a really subtle alluding to God. The more he oppressed, what's his will to oppress? What's got will to multiply? The more he did his will, the more God's will happened. You know, we know just through study and research that the church has grown more under oppression, times of oppression than at any other time. You go to China, the church is growing like crazy, where it's greatly oppressed. You go to most countries where the church is under oppression, and it is growing like crazy. That's the way it works. I don't get it. I don't necessarily like it. That's the way God has chosen to do it. So the more he oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. God is working his plan, and it creates, in the Egyptians, dread. What's that word? The Hebrew word is kutz. It, 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 it literally means dread, fear, but loathing. They abhor them. The more they saw them, the more they hated them. The more they wanted to get rid of them. They got sickened by, they're, they're like vermin. They're like roaches. They're like rats. They just, they're everywhere. And the more the Egyptians saw them growing and prospering, the angrier they got about it. Because Pharaoh knows that I got to get rid of them, so he enslaves them. One of the worst things you can do to anybody is take away their freedom and demean them and demote them. And that's what he initially starts to do is he turns them into slaves. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. What does he do? He enslaves them. He subjugates them. He turns them into his personal slaves. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. See, here's one of the things you don't understand. The world wants to enslave you. The world wants you to live according to its will. The world wants you to do things the way they deem them to be done, not according to the word of God, not according to the will of God. And so the world wants you enslaved to its way, its will. And it's easy to do. It's easy to fall in line with that and do the things that the world wants you to do. And without knowing it, you've become a slave. You become a slave to the things of this world rather than the things of the world to come. And they end up despised by the world, which should not surprise us, right? The world hates us. Their adopted homeland where they had lived for many, many centuries is now suddenly turned on them. And what used to be a wonderful place to live has turned into a horrible place to live in a heartbeat almost. And they become a curse. Even though they had at one time been blessed by God, they've been multiplied by God, that very action by God has made them a curse among the people with whom they live. Their fruitfulness made them a threat. 
The enemy hates that we're here. I don't know if you realize that, but he hates for you to come to Bible study. He hates for you to be around men who love the Lord and want to grow to become more like Jesus Christ. He hates it, and he will do everything in his power to make this not happen, to make your Tuesday morning something you just don't want to do. You wake up tired, something happens, you have a fight with your wife the night before, and you wake up, or you you got a lot of work to do, and you just don't want to go to Bible study. The enemy hates this. He hates when we gather on Sundays. Our fruitfulness is a threat to the enemy, and he will do anything in his power to stop it. See, Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you. What is he telling his disciples and telling us by extension? The world hates you. I mean, it's pretty simple. It's not, it may hate you. If you share your faith, it will hate you. If you go to church, it will hate you. If you live like Christ, it will hate you. No, it just hates you. Your relationship with Christ makes you something to be loathed. You're like vermin. You're considered stupid, backwards, ancient, archaic. You don't understand. You're you're not woke. You know, you, you don't live the way you're supposed to live. But he says, because you're not of the world, I've chosen you out of the world. So the world hates you. The world hates me. The world hates you. And Jesus said this, what blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil. Now, the second part is really important because you follow me. Now, the world may hate you because you're a jerk, okay? (laughs) The world may hate you just because you're stupid. I, I, I don't know. I don't know why your neighbors may hate you. You may just be a lousy neighbor. It may not necessarily be because you're a follower of Christ, but if you're a follower of Christ and you live for Christ, the world is gonna hate you. When that happens, though, be happy. Yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. See, Jesus was warning his disciples, which includes you and I, that we will and are hated, and we need to be aware of that, and we need to rejoice in the fact that we're hated because it's because of our relationship with Christ. So the Israelites are going to get schooled. They're about to learn some really important things about life with Yahweh. I told you last week, For 400 years, they've not been worshiping Yahweh. They have long forgotten about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they have become worshipers of the God of Israel. But they're going to get introduced to Yahweh, and they're going to learn some interesting things about this God as opposed to all the Egyptian gods. He's a different kind of God, and he works in a different kind of way. And they're going to find at this place called Egypt that has become their home from home, their new home that they don't necessarily want to leave, is not where they're supposed to be. And the gods that they've been worshiping are not an option anymore. These gods that you worship, including Pharaoh himself, you can't depend on them. As a matter of fact, those gods will do everything in their power to destroy you because you belong to me, Yahweh says. You're mine. And it's gonna come with trouble and their comfort zone is gonna get really, really, really uncomfortable really quick. And they're going to be sitting there going, what in the world is going on? And we're going to see that as we move through the the next chapters. And their concept concept of what it means to be blessed is going to get turned on its head in a big way. I think sometimes you and I don't understand what it means to be blessed by God. See, we have this concept that being blessed by God means everything goes perfectly. If you're sick, you get well. If you're having financial problems, God multiplies your resources. If, you know, marriage isn't going great, then he's going to heal it immediately. I can't tell you how many guys I have counseled over the years who've walked into my office and they say, I need help with my marriage. Uh, okay, let's talk. And we talk. And, and I know I'm getting one side of the story. And what I hear usually is a truncated view of their version of the story without their wife's version of the story. And it's always some, something like, well, I don't know what's going on, but she's just, she's just she's mad at me, and she's threatening to leave me, and I don't understand that. I'm like, you, you really don't understand that? No, I don't understand why she's leaving me. And they want me to fix their marriage, and I sit there and go, I can't fix your marriage because I didn't screw it up. You did. And so what are you going to do to fix your marriage? And they're like, what, what do you mean? What do, she's the one that wants to leave me, and I do you think she just came up with this last night? 
I mean, do you, do you think you have not laid the groundwork for your wife leaving you? See, blessing is not necessarily everything goes great. Everything goes well. God's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And I know the prosperity gospel is very popular, but that's not the way our God works. And the Israelites are going to find that out. So it says that the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, this is a fascinating story, if it's a son, kill him. Now, what's a midwife? A midwife is somebody who steps in in a birth situation and helps that woman give birth. If it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives fear God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So you have this story, and we're not going to dig deep into it. You can read more about it in the devotionary that I wrote. But they're being told by Pharaoh to kill these baby boys. Just as soon as they pop out of the womb, kill them. It's like post-birth abortion. Just take their lives. That's what they're told to do. He's going to go from exploiting the Israelites to exterminating them. How desperate is this guy? He's willing to kill newborn babies to eliminate the prospect of the Israelites multiplying. But his, his strategy, as far as I can tell, is really kind of self-defeating, right? Wait a minute. You want them to serve as slaves, but you're killing them. That doesn't make any sense. But that shows you how fearful he is that he doesn't want them to expand, even though it's going to impact dramatically future, the future workforce. If you kill all the male babies of the Jews, guess how many Jew, Jewish male men you're going to have in a couple of years? 15 years, 16 years, 17. You're not going to have many. And yet, that's how desperate he is. So he targets all the infants, all the male infants. Yet the midwives were told, fear God, and they refused to do it. Now, you can say this is the first case in the Bible we have of civil disobedience. They're going to obey God. Somehow these women, even though most of the people in their their generation have long ago forgotten about Yahweh, they have remembered Yahweh and they fear God and not Pharaoh. They step up and go, we ain't going to do it. And they don't. And they do not take the lives of those babies. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and they grew very strong. So here's God doing his thing again. He's the God of what? Multiplication. He's the God of blessing. Even though Pharaoh's trying to wipe him out, He's now blessing them. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh comes up with plan B, right? That didn't work. So he says, to all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall, not let, you shall let every daughter live. So now he's like, okay, I can't get the midwives to do it, so I'm going to enlist everybody in the community. Every Egyptian is now ordered by Pharaoh to do what? Kill Jewish baby boys. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that happening in any culture? Well, we don't have to look far back in history to see that that very thing happened during the reign of the Nazis. Compulsive complicity and culpability. He wants everybody involved. This is going to be a, a community-wide event. Everybody gets to play. Every Egyptian is supposed to step in and kill the babies of the Hebrews. That, that just blows me away. And, and we, we're not told how many obeyed this. We're not told how many babies were killed. But we do know that the Jews took it seriously. The Jews were threatened by this, and they understood it. This guy turns it into a racial issue. I'm going to make sure that we never are threatened by the Jews again because I'm going to kill off every male baby boy, which is going to drastically affect the procreative abilities in the years to come. He paints genocide as a form of nationalism. And guys, at the end of the day, this is spiritual warfare. This is Pharaoh who's working under the influence of the enemy against God Almighty. And again, who's going to win this battle? It's going to be God. It's always going to be God. But that doesn't mean the people of Israel are not going to suffer in the meantime. See, we are in a spiritual battle. They were in a spiritual battle. And it means in any spiritual battle, there are casualties, right? There are people who fall prey to the attacks of the enemy. We, we've seen people walk away from the faith. We've seen marriages dissolve because the enemy is attacking marriages. The enemy is attacking the family. The enemy is attacking the church, and we're going to see casualties. But that doesn't mean we give up the fight, and it doesn't mean our God is not in control. But it means we're in a spiritual batter, battle. 
And the enemy has always been trying to step in and eliminate God's redemptive plan. He knows that God is doing something, and the enemy hates it. He hates it today. He hated it then. He somehow knows that God wants to do something with the people. And guess what? This is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen when Jesus Christ appears in the scene. We know this from the book of Luke. We know that the angels appear to those shepherds when Jesus was born, and they say, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all the people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. This word gets out, and this word gets to the ears of Herod the king the king of Israel, who's actually an Edomite. He's not even a Jew, but he's sitting on the throne. He's ruling over the people of Israel. He gets word of this Messiah, this Christ, and he puts into implementation his plan to eliminate him. And we know this from the book of Matthew. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. The wise men had come to worship this new Messiah. They saw the sign in the heavens. They travel hundreds of miles and they get there and they are told where he is, and Herod says, when you find the baby, come let me know so I may go worship him. That's not his plan. What's his plan? Well, he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. See, Herod, centuries later, is doing the same thing Pharaoh did back in Egypt. He's trying to eliminate the redemptive plan of God. Herod's trying to eliminate what God has planned for Israel and for the world, and he does it by killing all the boys. It, it's, it's a very similar story. I love this from T. Esmond Alexander. He says, Pharaoh is presented as the anti-God figure whose actions are clearly intended to curb the fulfillment of God's purposes on earth. Pharaoh's antagonism toward the Israelites is much more than xenophobia. It's an attack on God and his will for humanity. This is even more noteworthy when we recall that the Egyptian pharaohs were viewed as divine beings. See, there's a battle going on. There, there's this war going on in the spiritual realms. And guess what? It's still going on today, guys. When you see what's going on with transgenderism and all this issue, these attacks on the family and manhood and womanhood, it, it, it's not just... Uh, a bunch of isms colliding. This is the enemy trying to thwart God's plan. He's trying to get the world to reject everything God has established, marriage, the family, children, the multiplication of the family. He's trying to eliminate that. And in this desperate attempt, he's trying to eliminate God's redemptive plan for the world. So that leads us to chapter 2. And we're going to blow through this, guys, because we're going to see so much of this as we move forward. But I, again, I need you to understand that God is in control because chapter 2 starts with now. You're going to see that word over and over again. It's a conjunctive. It's, it's a transitional term that something is happening. With all of this going on, everything Pharaoh's doing, trying to wipe out the Israelites, something happens. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, doesn't tell us who it is. If you've seen the movie, if you've read the book, you, you know who this is talking about. But notice it doesn't give it his name. This is some unnamed, obscure Jewish couple, and there were a lot of them, who made a decision to protect their infant boy. How many other couples do you think were doing this? Probably thousands, tens of thousands. Everybody wanted to protect their child, right? But this particular couple go out of their way. They see that this child is a fine child, a beautiful child, a special child. Doesn't every family think their child is special? Yeah. Every child is beautiful, and you see the picture and go, yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful baby. A little purple and, you know, weird looking, but yeah. That's not what this term means. It doesn't mean he's beautiful in appearance. There's something special about this child. Something special is going on, and they hid him for three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, you've got to stop and think about this. Now, as I said, I think there were tens of thousands of other couples doing the same thing. But this is very specific. 
what they do, how they do. There's something about this child that they see. It's not just a pretty child, a a well-formed child. There's something special and unique about this child. And they go through specific steps to take this child, craft a, a little boat, a bassinet that they cover with pitch. And the word there is really the word for ark. And they place it in the Nile. I can't think of a more stupid thing to do than to take a baby and place it in the ark. You know, there was a report from National Geographic just like two weeks ago that says they have now proven that crocodiles are attracted to the cries of infants. Well, that's not a, you know, like a brilliant deduction, right? I would think, yeah, if a crocodile hears a baby crying, it's going to go right to it. Where does she put this baby in the Nile? Where does she get that idea? I can't help believe that she got it from God to create this bassinet, cover it with pitch, stick the baby in the Nile, and then notice what she does. She tells her older daughter, and we're going to find it, it's Miriam, to go and watch what would happen. Now, why would she wait to watch what would happen? Because she thinks something's going to happen. And I don't think she's thinking that the baby's going to die. She thinks the baby's going to get rescued. Where'd she get that idea from? I think she must have heard something from God. It doesn't tell us in the text. But why did she do this? But the interesting thing is that she bore a son. See, once again, battle lines are drawn. And we can read this story. We're so familiar with the story that we lose sight of what's going on in the story. This is Pharaoh going up against Jehovah God, the God of the Israelites. Death versus life. What does Pharaoh want? Death. Death of every firstborn, every male child. What does God want? Life. Slavery versus freedom. See, this is a battle going on. And it's the world versus the kingdom of God. Here's something I I, I need you to think about as we move through the rest of this, this series. It's not all about you. I know that's a surprise to some of you. It ain't all about you. Does God love you? Yes. Does God have a plan for your life? Yes. But God's plan is so much greater than your life. You could die tonight. You could die today, like as I'm teaching. And we lay you over there and we just keep going. Because guess what? God's plan is going to keep going whether you die or not. It isn't about you. I'm glad God has a plan for me, but his plan may be that I drop dead right now and some of you would applaud and leave. That's, the point is that God has a plan. It ain't about Pharaoh. It ain't about the, the parents of Moses. It, it's not even about Moses. Because Moses is going to die too. It's about the kingdom of God. That's what this is always about. So God delivers a deliverer. Do these two parents know exactly what's going on? No, they have no idea what God has planned. They just know there's something special about this baby. And I have to believe that the Holy Spirit has somehow prompted their hearts to realize that you need to do these things to protect this child because God has a plan. See, God's all over it. God's always all over it. God is working behind the scenes that they can't see. This poor, unnamed Jewish couple who are like other Jewish couples who want to protect the life of their newborn child are doing everything they can. Their child is threatened with death. I would do everything in my power to save my child if I was living under that. And yet there's something else going on because they are trying to protect this child in a very unique and special way by putting it in a basket covered with pitch in the Nile, waiting to see what would happen, expecting something to happen. So she puts him in a waterproof basket. She sets it afloat in the Nile, which is the worst place I could ever think to put the baby because one of the greatest gods they worshiped was the Nile. She's, she's literally putting the baby in their God's hands. But what's she really doing? She's putting her baby in Yahweh's hands, Jehovah's hands. She's anticipating salvation. She's not offering a sacrifice. I don't think this woman is saying, God of the Nile, please protect my child. No, she's putting her baby in the hands of the Egyptians' most powerful God, trusting that her God was gonna gain the victory. It's an amazing part of the story. See, we go to Hebrews eleven twenty three and listen to what it says, the great hall of faith. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. 
See, Hebrews tells us that there was a motivation going on between their desire to save their child, not just the love of a parent for a child, but God had somehow let them know that this child is unusual. This child is special. And God then orchestrates a series of fortunate events. I, I love this part of the story. The basket gets discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. She just happens to be out bathing in the Nile and she sees the basket caught in the reeds. Well, that's fortunate. No, that's God. That's God. She decides to violate her, her dad's edict about what? Every Hebrew child is to be put to death. She's gonna disobey her, God, her father's commands. And then she ends up hiring Moses' mother to be the baby's nursemaid. Who saw this happening? Miriam. Why was Miriam there? Because somehow her mother knew to send her to see what would happen. And she's the one who said, hey, I got a great choice of a nursemaid. And the, the mother gets to raise her own child until he's weaned at probably five years old. Is this karma? Good luck? Fate? No, this is the hand of God. And that little baby becomes Pharaoh's grandson. I love the irony. I, I love, it, it's, it's just like a slap in the face that Pharaoh, this great God who has come up with this great plan to eliminate all the Hebrew male children is going to raise in his own home the man who's going to deliver not only those people from his slavery, but he's going to deliver 10 plagues upon his people. God's got a great sense of humor, and God is always in control. So what happens? One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. He looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, and he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. What's amazing here is that we've skipped 40 years. Moses is writing this, and I love his, his chronology is just kind of interesting. He just skips large portions. He doesn't tell us anything about the 40 years between his salvation from the Nile and this part of the story. 40 years have passed. He's fast-forwarded because he's trying to get to the point of the story, and the point of the story is to remind the people of Israel that their God's in control. See, this guy had grown up in Pharaoh's family, and he was highly privileged. He was also protected. What do I mean by that? He's living in the home of the guy that still has an edict out to kill all baby boys, and he's lived in that home protected, privileged, and being prepared. God is preparing him in Pharaoh's court. And again, I look at that and go, well, that doesn't make sense. Oh, it makes all the sense in the world because God is going to use all that training to use this man to set his people free. So for four decades, what did he see? His father, his stepfather, punishing the people of Israel. See, he knows he's a Jew living like an Egyptian, and he's watching his stepfather assault all the Israelites. He's seen all the inequities, all the injustices. He's questioned, why am I protected? Why am I living in the lap of luxury? Why do I have all the fancy clothes? Why do I get to be educated and privileged when my people are being killed? And he's wrestling with, what, what is this all about? What's my role? What's my responsibility? What should I do? And so at 40 years old, he seizes what he sees as an opportunity. What does he do? he kills an Egyptian who was persecuting a Hebrew. Now, why did he do it at this moment? Why did it take 40 years for him to step in and try to save his people? Because I think he's been wrestling with, what is my role? What should I do? He's feeling something's not right. I'm here for a purpose. I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe I'm supposed to set my people free. And when he kills this Egyptian, it's seen, it's witnessed says, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. Seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. He commits a crime. He commits a murder, buries the body, hoping nobody would notice. But he went out the next day. Behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. He said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And you can only imagine what went through Moses' heart at that point. Oh my gosh, somebody saw it. I'm in deep doo-doo. This is going to get out. My stepfather is not going to be happy with me. Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he did hear about it. He sought to kill Moses. 
he suddenly realizes, I've had this idiot living in my home for 40 years. He's a dead man. So Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And we're going to wrap it up here for the morning. By faith, we're told, this is Hebrews 11 again. This is really important. By faith, when he grew up, 40 years old, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be ill-treated with the people of God than to enjoy sin's fleeting pleasure. He regarded abuse suffered for Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For his eyes were fixed on the reward. By faith, he left Egypt without fearing the king's anger, for he persevered as though he could see the one who is invisible. It's a fascinating passage, and we're going to deal more with it next week. But what's it telling us? The author of Hebrews is saying, this guy understood something about his role. He just got the timing wrong. He understood that he was there for a reason. He understood that God had a plan for him. He tried to implement the plan in his way. You see, Moses was being called by God to reject the fleeting pleasures of sin and the treasures of Egypt. This was part of God's plan for his life. And he would spend the next 40 years of his life in Midian as a common shepherd. Moses left his former life behind. He turned his back on his old identity as the son of Pharaoh's daughter so that he might be who God had called him to be. Don't miss this part. This is all part of God's plan. That that murder, as heinous as it is, is going to be used by God to accomplish his will so that God can turn this man into the man he needs to be. And we'll close with this. And Moses was instructed on all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds, which he got from his education. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And then Stephen goes on and says, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving him salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. It wasn't time yet. He, he got his timing wrong. He was going to be the deliverer. He just wasn't ready yet. And Stephen preaches this sermon, and he's telling us that God had a plan. God was in control. So here's your discussion questions. As as we did last week, I want to start with you apart from this story. How did you see God's character on display in your life this week? See, we're trying to see God. We're trying to discover God. So where this week did you see God's character on display in your life? Secondly, what are some specific examples of God's sovereignty over the events in today's passage? How do you see him at work in the life of Moses, his parents, Pharaoh, and the people of Israel. Finally, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court, another 40 years in Midian. How do you think God used this 80-year delay to prepare Moses? Say, I look at that and go, God, hurry up, God. What's with the 80-year thing? Just get him going. Get him busy. Why did God delay this for 80 years? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men. And I pray as we talk around the tables that you would help us to take what we've heard and and apply it to our lives, that, Father, we would understand that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. You are still working your plan. You still have a redemptive plan for this world. You're not done yet. You're not up in heaven wringing your hands. You're not caught off guard by the transgender movement. You're not caught off guard by any of the isms that are going on. The enemy is still trying to thwart your plan, but your plan is unthwartable. And may we trust in that, rest in you, and realize you're not done yet. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.